Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make cities better. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. This week, we report from the Swiss Alps. We have a huge issue to address in terms of affordable housing. And what we tend to see is that when it's conducive to do so, the private sector will build houses. But we need to reach equilibrium in terms of demand and supply, so there is a role for government and also building houses in the future. This week saw global leaders descend into the town of Davos in Switzerland for this year's World Economic Forum. So it seems fitting that many urbanists, local leaders and thinkers were there too, discussing what's next for the places that we call home. We'll hear from the mayor of Miami about his city's post-pandemic recovery, Sit down with urban futurologist Thomas Ermacora to unpack what lies on the horizon and speak with Yulia Klemenko, a Ukrainian MP tasked with rebuilding her country's cities ravaged by the war. All that and much, much more coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist. So, welcome to the programme. Monocle's team on the ground has been busy reporting from Davos. And while there's been plenty to say about Ukraine, the future of Europe and beyond, we were glad to see that urban issues such as housing, climate change, inequality and sustainability were also prominent on the agenda. Monocle's Carlotta Rabello was there to report for us, and she's just returned from Davos. So before we get stuck in with today's episode... I wanted to get her thoughts on this year's edition of WEF. Thanks, Carlotta, for coming to see us. Hi, Andrew. Nice to be back. <laughs> and we're saying that there was an urban focus. How important was that this year, do you think? It was particularly poignant this year, considering this is the first in-person World Economic Forum since the pandemic. So a lot of our cities have changed over those 18 months, as we've discussed in this show countless times. But for a lot of these leaders and entrepreneurs and civic organisers, it was actually the first time that they were all able to be in the same room addressing some of these issues. And what people might not really realise is just the amount of impromptu meetings and conversations that end up happening. You might be leaving a panel with the CEO of Microsoft all about technology that has nothing to do with cities, but then one of the people attending, it's one of our guests who is building through technology one of the world's most sustainable buildings. And for him, hearing that talk was the thing he was most looking forward to because it's about how to use technology to make cities better, to make construction better, so that when we think about the life of a city and the lives of buildings, it's not just how do you make it sustainable when you're building a new, but also repurposing and retrofitting and adaptability. I see you've got the mayor of Miami. And in fact, we have a focus on Miami in the July-August issue that we're just working on now because we're looking at these sunbelt cities in America and how they've revived actually often better than some of the the northern cities because people have been attracted by this nomadic working and being in the sunshine. For someone like him being in Davos, what was his pitch? Well, particularly the fact that there weren't that many American mayors. I believe he was the only American mayor there. He was there mostly because he has been using tech to attract people back to Miami, tech entrepreneurs. So a lot of benefits for companies to relocate there. And that 
was why he got invited to come to Davos and to speak around that issue. But then it became a whole panel that he was involved in that was about Miami's post-pandemic economic recovery and how actually is one of the top two, I think, in American cities economically in terms of post-pandemic recovery. And it's exactly as you say, Andrew, it's uh, people looking for that sunshine. But the fact that all these other measures were put in at a local level to not only attract people who want to be digital nomads and have the nice weather, but actually to plant roots, open their company, move their company there, employ local people. That has been something that has been crucial to his mayorship. And also, he is the first Miami mayor to have been born in Miami, actually, which is quite wild when you think about that. (laughs) Miami, of course, is one of the most diverse cities in the US. And to think that he is the first one to actually be born in the city also shows how things are slowly changing in terms of who chooses to live there and why. Thank you, Carlotta. Well, let's hear now from a few of the people that you met and let's see what they were getting up to in Davos. This year's World Economic Forum looks slightly different. Instead of snow-capped mountains, spring is in full bloom and the traditional black and navy blue sea of suits has been swapped by warmer, gentler colours. The past week, reporting in Davos showed that global leaders were keen to get together in a room and get to work, with many of the panels and events oversubscribed with a queue out of the door. From an urbanism point of view, this was also an edition that seemed to have a particularly strong focus on cities. Between mayors, thinkers, NGO directors and aficionados, there was plenty of buzz about what the cities of the future might look like. To get a better understanding of WEF's urban agenda, I caught up with Alice Charles, the forum's lead for cities, infrastructure and urban services. So first of all, we're an international organisation for public-private collaboration. So that means we work with leaders of government, business and civil society. And that, of course, includes leaders from cities. So at the Forum, we have an urban transformation platform which is focused on the future of our cities. So we have quite an extensive programme, for example, this week in Davos that's addressing everything from how do we create healthy cities in Africa to the role of the metaverse in the future of our cities. So what is our vision for future cities? I suppose we have seen huge changes in our cities as a result of the pandemic. And in fairness, some of the changes that we have seen, the pandemic has exacerbated. But certainly what we want to see in the future is cities that are more livable, that are more sustainable, that are more resilient and more affordable. So if I return to livability, that's about creating cities that have a much better quality of life. It's about ensuring that we're developing healthy cities. It's about ensuring that we're providing the green space and protecting nature that's required, which is good for our physical and our mental health, but also good for climate. It's about ensuring our cities are sustainable. So that's about ensuring that we get to net zero. That means, for example, you cannot have a net zero city if you don't have a compact city. So it's about urban planning, ensuring that we create compact development. But it's also about changing our energy supply and our energy grid. In relation to mobility, it's about electrifying our mobility system, but equally it's about getting people walking, cycling and using public transit systems. And also it's about decarbonising our buildings. And that's not just operational emissions, which people focus on, but it's also about addressing our embodied carbon, changing the types of building materials and methods of construction that we're using today to address embodied carbon. But of course, most of our built environment is built in the global north 
most of it has yet to be built in the global south. So it also means that we're ensuring in terms of planning and in terms of delivery of infrastructure that from the very beginning we are seeking to have infrastructure that is going to reach net zero. The other thing that we really see as critically important is resilience. I suppose before the pandemic, when we thought about resilience, we purely thought about climate resilience. But actually, resilience needs to be thought about in its much wider context. And that's everything, of course, from extreme shocks as a result of something like a health pandemic, financial crisis, but also dealing with extreme weather events, which are becoming more and more frequent as a result of climate change. We've got to design our built environment to withstand those effects and nature-based solutions has a major role in relation to that. But equally it means that we need to design our spaces to be flexible and capable of conversion and capable of deconstruction over time. So if you're designing an office for tomorrow, can you design that office so it also can be residential in the future if it's no longer fit for purpose as an office? So adaptability plays a really important role in maintaining that sustainability, that resilience, to ensure that our cities are not just one-dimensional. Absolutely. Flexibility and adaptability is critical in terms of resilience. And I suppose something that's very much to the fore now is the whole issue as well of affordability, which we've got to address in our cities around the world. And we did some work a couple of years ago looking at making affordability housing a reality in our cities and what we found was that around the world 87% of cities were not providing adequate affordable accommodation so we had a crisis before COVID-19 and we know that crisis has got worse in the global north we've had soaring house prices so the ability of people to purchase homes has become even more difficult also in the global north we've seen a lot of people losing their jobs we've seen a lot of people fleeing to cities in search of employment opportunities so the need to provide housing is even greater than ever and in the informal settlements that already existed how could you maintain social distancing people don't have adequate housing to live in and they don't have access to adequate water and sanitation. So we have a huge issue to address in terms of affordable housing. And what we tend to see is that when it's conducive to do so, the private sector will build houses. But we need to reach equilibrium in terms of demand and supply. So there is a role for government and also building houses in the future. So in conclusion, we're very much focused on what we can do to create cities that are more livable, that are more sustainable, more resilient and more affordable. Now, one of the many mayors in attendance this year was Francis Suarez, the mayor of Miami. His city is number one in the US in post-pandemic recovery and also one of the most diverse in the nation. He described what has helped usher this comeback moment for his city. Miami, for about 10 plus years, was trying to create a thriving tech ecosystem. The reason why was because we felt it was necessary not only to diversify our economy, but for our sheer viability. And I responded to a tweet in December 4th of 2020. I said, hey, what if we move Silicon Valley to Miami? And I responded very innocently, how can I help? And that went viral. Why? Because number one, it was an opposite attitude that other cities were taking towards technology. And I think people were just surprised that a politician would say, how can I help? And I think just being pro-business, pro-free market, which then became pro-Bitcoin and pro-crypto, created a brand for Miami as a place where you could freely succeed and where success was not something that we would discourage or that we would in any way make you feel shameful about, but on the contrary. And after that, I mean, it was like parting the Red Sea, like 
everybody's coming, you know. So we've moved $2 trillion conservatively in assets under managed companies to Miami. Our VC pipeline grew by 400% year over year. So everyone answered the call. And I think the pandemic obviously helped. We're number one in pandemic recovery in the country. We're number one in wage growth. We're number one in tech job growth. So we just rebranded our city and now we have critical mass, which makes it very hard for the genie to go back into the bottle. It's quite interesting to observe the parallel with that push bringing people to Miami, because Miami is one of the most diverse cities in the country, has always had people coming to it. But now, obviously, it's this new wave of tech entrepreneurs and investors coming in. You are, of course, the first mayor of Miami to be born in the city. Diversity is a big issue. How does that influence your decision making? And obviously, it's a city that respects all the backgrounds and cultures, and it celebrates its diversity. How does that influence the policy? you have to have in mind compared to also bringing in this new wave? I think it's a huge asset. I think the fact that when people come from the outside, they realize that a large percentage of the people also have come from the outside. It makes them feel welcome faster. And the faster that people feel welcome, the less likely they are ever to leave. So I think it's a huge asset for us. It's something we lean into. And it's something that's been a big part of our success over time. What are you hoping to achieve from this week here at the World Economic Forum? I think part of it is telling our story. You know, this is a worldwide opportunity to tell the story of Miami, of its success. And it's always a learning opportunity when you're hearing from others to make sure that you're doing everything that you can to create prosperity for your residents. And that's something that, you know, that we're here to participate in. Now, of course, cities have been tested through the past 18 months, to say the least. You mentioned at the start of our conversation how Miami has been able to recover swiftly from it. Have you taken some lessons on board from that time? I know that some people and some city leaders have taken the time to reflect about what even urbanization mean. But the city is not going anywhere. So how has those 18 months influenced your thinking about Miami as a city? I think it's a tremendous learning experience about how to create an economy that's resilient about leadership and making tough decisions, about how you make those decisions and the process by which you make those decisions. So, you know, it's been an incredible experience that I think has made Miami stronger and more resilient. Now, you did mention in your intro, of course, that you're the president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. It would be remiss having this opportunity not to ask, as the president, what do you think is the biggest challenge of the city, American cities right now? Without looking at COVID and pandemic recovery, is there anything that you feel that cities need to come together to tackle? Oh, definitely rising crime is a major issue, as well as rising rents. But in the case of rising crime, you know, what we've done in Miami is we've leaned into committing more resources to public safety. A lot of other cities have tried to defund police. We've increased funding for police. We have more police officers we've ever had in our history. And we've seen a precipitous decline in our homicide rate. Our homicide rate went down 23% last year, and this year it's down 40%, which is a 63% reduction from the year prior. So I think those are lessons that can be learned and scaled including all the other things that we've done to create a holistic solution, reducing homelessness, having low unemployment, and focusing on affordable housing. Perhaps not surprisingly, there was one theme that dominated the agenda here in Davos, and that's the ongoing war in Ukraine. Yulia Klemenko is the deputy head of Ukraine's Transport and Infrastructure Committee. She's part of a delegation of Ukrainian members of parliament who are here at Davos to advocate for the country and ask world leaders to provide military assistance. She's part of the committee tasked with rebuilding her nation. So, how do you even start to think about rebuilding as your country continues to be ravaged by war? 
What we can do the best is just to feed Russia and then they will stop destroying our infrastructure. This is the plan A. Plan B, now we are repairing our infrastructure and we are using it. Despite they destroyed 23% of our railways, we are repaired it and we are using railways. I came here by train uh, to Warsaw. So we are doing it all the time and Ukrainians paying uh, it by their own lives because uh, in the railway company more than 100 people killed because they tried to repair or to evacuate people. So that's uh, we are paying by our lives and blood for this repair, unfortunately. How is that destruction of infrastructure affecting cities that are not, you know, at the front line? For a lot of weeks we saw that Lviv was one of the few cities where people were able to get out of the country, that the trains were running, and it seemed like life was pretty much normal. But of course, hitting the infrastructure, rail lines, roads, bridges, affects the entire economy and the way the country moves. So I'm curious, how is that affecting the cities that are still able to more or less, under these extreme circumstances, function as cities? Actually, it's destroying supply chains. Evacuation is much more longer than we are expecting. But as we are repairing all the time, I mean, all these cities that are not in the front line, they are working, they are living, and they are producing their share in the GDP because we need economy to run to pay for the war, basically, and to pay for our social payments because we cannot turn into be Afghanistan when you don't have government, don't have pensions, don't have salaries, and people start and selling their kids uh, just to get food. Yeah, That's why we need to work. So uh, our strategy is to have a war. It's very complicated, but we are working on it to defeat Russia. And in parallel, we are up and running economy. And all this city, not in the front line, they should work, pay taxes, uh, employ people. And that's our strategy. We will uh, put it further. Just a final question. You mentioned how the country is repairing roads and an infrastructure that's being hit as it goes. Have you started already the process of thinking how to rebuild after the war is won by Ukraine? Has that conversation started to happen? It's not only conversation, it's a very big working group and big discussions. We have uh, many groups uh, around reconstruction, one of them infrastructure. So we're now making a plan, three-stage plan, how to reconstruct Ukraine. Short term, it's for this year next year. Then it's mid-term for next three years and then uh, for 10 years, basically, 2032. Because we are now working on this plan, despite we cannot estimate the whole destruction and the cost of this destruction, we are working on a rebuilding reconstruction plan at this point of time because we understand that we need to do it as soon as the war stops. And the shortest war will mean less reconstruction costs for all of us, for Ukrainians, for Europeans, for the whole world. So we need short war and then we have less of uh, reconstruction efforts and money. Are you confident that Ukraine will be able to play host to Eurovision next year? Yes. And we will win, definitely. My prediction is by the end of this year. Now let's turn to the Nordics. Helen is a Finnish energy company that's committed to achieving carbon neutrality by 2030, along with the city of Helsinki. Christina Sillin is the business development manager at Helen, and she told me why her company describes itself as the best producer of city energy. Well, it's transforming a lot, so because we are facing now a totally new era of the whole energy field, since we are 
becoming carbon neutral, for example, by 2030. We are Helen, so we are moving towards distributed energy system, and that involves all the citizens and the customers also. We are bringing them kind of into the center, so they can have their own solar power plants, own geothermal heating. It's not only us who are providing the heat, it's also our customers who can be part of this whole change. And we are making it possible for them and making it easy for them to access the electricity and heat. So it's about involving people in the energy cycle. Yeah, that's true. And we are basically just providing a platform for sustainable living and moving. And that platform then enables our customers also to be easily producers by themselves, for example. Now, I know that uh, the city of Helsinki has that ambitious goal of becoming carbon neutral by 2030, which seems very, very soon. And I know that initially that target was further away and it's been brought back. Helen obviously plays a big part in that reality, in making it happen. Do you feel like there's still a lot of convincing that needs to be done? Because it strikes me that the Finnish population is quite on board with this idea. Yeah, and I think that already we do have really ambitious goals. So, for example, we have three power plants in Helsinki. Two of those are powered with coal, and we are phasing out coal by 2024. So it's really soon. Next year we will phase out one of the plants, and the second the year after. So it's really happening. So that 2030 target is really achievable. So... I think we are on board and also we're making the transition happen for our customers as well. So not only transforming our energy system, but also helping our customers with their kind of carbon neutrality paths that they are also changing their business into more sustainable ones. So we are doing a lot together and also making our impact to the city's emissions. With all the whole city's emissions, 70% comes from the heating. So when we reduce all that, we make a great impact. That leads me to the next question, which was, I'm curious then to see how, in your eyes, it does change the city and it makes for a better quality of life, for a better way of living by indeed reducing those goals. Yeah, of course, it's greener, like in terms of mobility, with electric cars, you don't see those power plants anymore in the city. Uh, so we produce the green electricity somewhere else, like in the seaside, uh, where it's windy. Then we distribute the electricity to the city to produce then green heating, for example. But also the whole industry is changing. So the platform that I mentioned, we are kind of integrating different industries within the platform. So, for example, the future food can be produced with, for example, hydrogen that can be then produced with green electricity. So there are different components uh, gluing companies together. So when we combine our, for example, waste sources like CO2 and then our green electricity and green hydrogen from that, that can end up on our plates in the future. And while they make those solane kind of powder that can end up in the future food, that makes like process waste heat in their processes. So that can be then fit back into our system. So also these different industries, they can help the citizens to keep warm, for example, in Helsinki. So it's amazing. So we're all kind of coming together and making this change. And I guess just finally, what are you hoping to get out of this week of Davos? It's the world's most important business event. There's a lot of representatives from all industries, almost every single country on earth, all levels of hierarchy from CEOs to junior staff. So there's a lot of potential here. What are you looking out for? Who are you looking out for? What are you expecting to achieve? 
So the platform, as I said, it's done together. We need partners. Uh, we have some waste streams like CO2 and ash, but we need, for example, that waste heat that can help us also to achieve the carbon neutrality goals. So partners who probably they might have like industrial processes, data centers or something that end up giving heat for us, for example. So that kind of partnerships that we can actually build the future together. So seeking that kind of discussions that can then result into further collaborations in Finland. There were several panels on the use of technology and innovation, but I was particularly keen to hear from the team behind Edge. They're a building developer that sits at the intersection between tech and planning to deliver what they describe as the world's most sustainable building. I was intrigued. My name is Koen van Oostrom. I am the founder and CEO of the company Edge. We make office buildings and we try to make the most sustainable office buildings in the world. We've been wanting to catch up with you for a while because this idea behind Edge of making the most sustainable buildings in the world is very ambitious. How are you delivering that? So we started already on the journey of sustainability 15 years ago. I met Al Gore 15 years ago and I got very inspired. But what we tried to do 15 years ago is say, hey, can we also make an amazing building that is not using any energy or at least not any fossil fuels anymore? And we have done so much innovation since then in the last 15 years that we created a lot of new technology. We found out that if you make a sustainable building, it's a small step also to make a healthy building. If you make a healthy building, Post-COVID, you also want to make a fun building. And there's a lot of different elements in a successful building that you have to bring together. And it's all around sustainability, health, technology, and fun of working. And um, modern buildings can do all that. Now, you mentioned their well-being, and it seems, as you also highlighted, that since COVID, there's been an increase in this movement to actually put people's health at the front of design. What are some of the key things a building must have that can then deliver a healthy living environment? Yeah, I think that the main thing we're focusing on is measuring what is happening in the building. If you know what is happening, then you can actually steer the building in the right direction. The other day, I was talking to a mayor of a big Dutch city, and they asked me, so what can we do in our own offices? And we gave them a couple of small sensors that they would put in a couple of meeting rooms. And it turned out that after just half an hour of a meeting of the mayor with the main senators in that city, it turns out that the air quality was so bad that people really had to leave the room and open the windows and do some things about it. Now, if you have a small sensor and a small screen that turns red when that is happening, that will give us a, a huge amount of information to do something about it. Even better, if you make a new building, you can really make sure that if that happens, that the computer that runs the building knows it. If you have a little bit of machine learning, then what you can do is make sure that the building already knows a meeting is coming. I'm going to make sure that there is extra air available in that space in a way very low tech because there's so many easy ways of doing this, but it's not done in 99.9% of our buildings. And this is something we need to fix. So it should be a regulation in new buildings that we do this. We as a developer do it, but I think that the big question is how can we do it in existing buildings? And I would say that on the European Union scale, it should at least be an obligation that we measure what is happening. It's quite interesting to hear your passion when you talk about this issue and all the different types of technology that are being rolled out in order to deliver that vision. Um, how is it translating into practice? So how close are you to be able to 100% achieve a building that's within that goal? So on the sustainability front, we've really taken huge steps. And that means that basically when it comes to the carbon that a building is using during the operation, we really can bring that back to zero. 
there's huge innovations going on. So there's innovations when it comes to cement. Green cement is out there. We will see steel that is being reused or new steel plants that are being built in a different way and that's going to be way more efficient than what we saw in the past. But there's still a long way to go. What we are doing as a company that at least we are taking our checkbook out and for every carbon that we are using in this embodied part of the building, we're still paying for it. Existing buildings, that is where the huge the problems are. And here in Davos, I spend a lot of time talking to Vice President Gore, talking to the head of the COP26, talking to a lot of mayors. We need to develop better carrot and stick approaches. And so we need to tax people that are using too much energy in their existing buildings and use that money in a very efficient way to help others to do inventions in their building, to do upgrades, and basically start a retrofit revolution that needs to take place now. And what I'm disappointed about in those 15 years since I started with doing this is that on the retrofit side, the progress is way too slow. And it's not technology. The technology is there. We know how to do this. But it's just no incentive for owners of real estate to really start doing this. And I think that there's one benefit to these huge energy prices today, and that is that now there is pressure for owners to do something and start to invest in lower energy use in existing buildings. So essentially, once you bring that municipal and local government level on board, or even national governments on board, you can accelerate this revolution, really? Yeah, I think that's the case. One of the things here is that we're trying to bring the people of the city of Amsterdam together with the city of Stockholm, and then we have people from the city of Lima and South America. and. Everybody is trying to do its own thing. The Dutch have a very successful program at the moment where you're not allowed to rent out an office space anymore if it doesn't have at least an energy label C next year. And in a couple of years, it has to be an energy label A. And that forces everybody to start investing and start to rethink the use of their offices. Now, Berlin is looking at that and might copy that and might introduce that as well. And I think that is exciting. But I hope that the cities will talk more to each other and learn from each other to see what works and what doesn't work. And we have to make sure that industry also form teams and become a partner to solve that. Because if the municipalities all by themselves are going to introduce this pressure on the market, then it's better that the markets are also part of that discussion, that debate, to make sure that it's done in the most efficient way. So, how have our views of cities changed over the past 18 months? And what lies ahead when we think about the future of urban living? Thomas Emarcora is an urban thinker, technologist and city futurologist. I wanted to hear his take on the issue before leaving Switzerland. I have a very simple way of looking at it, which is people have prognosticated the death of the city. And I really disagree with that. I actually think it's accelerated history towards better city making. And it needs to be more community-centric, people-centric, data-informed, evidence-based design. And there are a few things that were on the shelf that are going to be implemented a lot faster. If we think about public space design, we are acutely aware of the need for that, for communities to find mental health balance. We need green spaces. We need to find ways of re-architecting our community spaces or our commons. Obviously, we also know that there's a much bigger crisis than COVID, which is climate change. So cities need to adapt a lot faster to the way that they can design themselves out of trouble. I think that the conversation just reached a lot higher level and there's a lot more collaboration between cities. So that's the second thing. The third 
third one is I'm a big believer in the transformation of mobility and work that we've seen through COVID. We think we have to redesign, obviously, the way that we move, not only for our footprint, but also because we need certain kinds of air quality and we need to be able to monitor pathogens, et cetera, et cetera. So these things that were kind of, let's say, quality of life factors are becoming so critical for us to be able to operate. And the fourth one, which is a lot more, I guess, around disruptive tech and generally how we use computing to analyze behavior. And I think there we're also you know, hitting a threshold where we want to be understanding the way that we can support community well-being through that understanding of the city. We can start to be extremely not reactive, but proactive or just generally active in the way that we manage spaces in the city. And I think that's something that COVID has actually accelerated. So I'm excited by that. One thing that we've been hearing in urbanism circles and in this more holistic approach to urban planning and designing is that in its essence, you need to put people at the center of design and at the center of planning. Do you find that designers and city halls are a bit more skeptical to fully go in on technology because for them it does not include that people angle, which in my opinion couldn't be further from the truth? That's a really thorny question. And um, I think there's two tendencies that to me are really heavy. The first one is a graduation from what I'd like to consider the dumb smart city. And we might be just dawning on an age of actual true smart cities that are data informed. And it depends on the quality of the mayor and the quality of the constituency around the mayor to facilitate the dialogue. But there's also the other side, which is there are communities that are refractory to technology adoption. And in particular, there's a lack of technology literacy. The cyber and privacy fear is still dampening the the sort of distribution of intelligent technology for cities to be technology activated in the right way. I'm an optimist in that space, but I also think we need to be very, very clever about another part of cities, which is the low-tech angle. Crawl, walk, run is kind of the way I look at technology adoption. And we tend to be very top-down imposing technologies that are too disruptive for communities to really adopt. So I think there needs to be an appropriate technology discourse, conversation between citizens, you know, municipalities and technology companies. There was a lot of people who proclaimed the death of the city and we've heard that echoing through the last 18 months or so. And the city is still here to stay. As a futurist yourself, the last question I would like to ask you is, where do you see the future of the city go? What is your vision of what lies ahead? So I'm going to give three time horizons. Of course, I don't have a crystal ball, but I would give one which I would call the near future. And the near future to me is not the death of the city, it's the reinvention of the purpose of the city. The city was originally designed as a consequence of the need to organize people around power and defense. It evolved over time more around commerce. Actually, you know, I think that the city of the future is going to lean a lot more on needed interactions and relations. Cities have lost their commons to the car. Cities have lost their commons to the digital life. And I think this is something we are about to understand very well and recreate. And it has extraordinary positive externalities for the future. The medium time horizon, you know, 2050 is probably, you know, how we're going to reshape the city around climate and possibly public hygiene and these major hurdles that we're facing. And I actually think there again that we're going to see cities as hopefully when they're functional, mosaics of well-engineered villages. If we can create very healthy communities, I think that's a, a great way to look at the future city. And I don't see you know, the future being tons of towers and science fiction. I don't either see it as the bucolic past. 
but there's a you know a good relationship to build there that's healthy between those two conflicting ideologies so that's a sort of you know 2050 if you look at 2100 there's a lot of issues and cities are going to concentrate problems but also solutions i want to be hopeful about the fact that cities can be the incubators for regenerative civilization design if we want to be planetary stewards you know we need to elevate our individual consciousness to a collective consciousness and intelligence around city building that leverages all our capacity together to be bringing back nature as a sort of the organizing principle. I work with a variety of projects that are, you know, leaning in that direction, one in particular called Supernature, where the building of a city is there to empower nature to support life. And what you see still today is that cities are suppressing nature, even in the best green city designs. So I think we're in a very good position to think about that 2100 city framework. I'm very optimistic that we can be smart, but let's not fool ourselves. There's a lot of work. For Monocle in Davos, I'm Carlotta Rubello. Well, a fascinating show there. And I'll just point out that actually in the June issue of Monocle magazine, on sale now, there's also a report about rebuilding Ukraine cities. So I recommend you get the magazine. Oh, come a subscriber, hey. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of The Urbanist. Get your weekly fix of urbanism and built environment news by subscribing to our podcast. And you can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and of course, at monocle.com. And with it, you also get five-minute bite-sized sister show, Tall Stories, new episodes of which are out every Monday. Today's episode, however, was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Vendredi Surmer with Écoute Chérie. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Écoute Chérie.